If you've got a Bible, uh, we're going to be in Psalms 122, probably one of your most familiar psalms. You probably can quote um, the first two verses of this, or at least the first verse, I'm sure. You've probably quoted it before and didn't, maybe didn't even know where it was at or where it was from in the Bible. Uh, so I want to ask you to open to Psalm 122. Um, it's toward the back of the book of Psalms because they get kind of short and uh, sweet. Um, maybe like today's message, right? Um, they get kind of short uh, at the end of the book. So Psalm 122, when you see it, you'll know it, um, and you'll remember it in your call, I'm sure, reading it a few times before. But I want to just uh, give the word of the center of our attention this morning and uh, read this before we get started. I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, all Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built as a city that is compact together, where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to the testimony of Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord, for the thrones are set there for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. May peace be within your walls, prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brethren and companions, I will now say, peace be within you, because of the house of the Lord our God. I will seek your good. And that refers to everybody that lives and dwells in the city. Um, most of you know, but in case you did not know, uh, the book of Psalms is an ancient wor- worship book, an ancient hymnal, really. Um, all of the 150 Psalms that are in this book are worship songs that were sang by ancient Israel. And uh, uh, over the next couple of weeks, um, we, are, we, have been, we have been and are going to continue to study um, a certain portion of the Psalms that I'll talk about in just a minute. Um, but you've, if, you were to, uh, if you were alive in ancient Israel all those years ago, um, had there been a radio, if you were to turn on the radio station, you would have heard one of these songs playing at all times. Um, If you were to take a stroll down the city square, there would be somebody playing a harp um, there to uh, mostly, most likely one of these songs they would be playing and strumming along. Um, If you were to attend a parade or go to one of the big sheep sharing festivals that were uh, were the big deals in town, um, there would be bands playing these songs over the loudspeakers, you know, in the, in the, in the, the tailgating areas, everybody would be playing and singing these songs. And, And some of them, them, they're more personal. Um, some are more prayers that were prayed, you know, in, in privacy or in, you know, individually. Um, some were memorized that were kind of part of family traditions. Um, some were like lullabies uh, that literally they would sing and, and they would pray before they would go to bed. Um, some were songs that were appropriate for funerals. Others are anthems and are ballads that really kind of capture the spirit and history of the nation. So there's a little bit of everything in this book, much like if you were to pick up one of our hymnals or pick up a worship book at any given church in any given era, um, there's a little bit of everything found in our, our, in our worship books, in our hymnals. And, and the section of Psalms that we are studying, uh, we're not studying all of these, but uh, from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134 um, is a section of Psalms called Songs of Ascent, um, as in ascent. Ascending a mountain, uh, they were literally uh, capturing uh, the, the the nation as they were ascending to Jerusalem, but but also carrying a spiritual message of taking that next step, reaching that next level on a higher plane, wherever God might be leading us to. Uh, but of course, geography plays a big role in this. Uh, Jerusalem was literally a city on a hill. It was built on a mountain called Mount Zion. You've probably heard of that before. And anytime anyone from out of town made a visit to Jerusalem, 
regardless of what direction they were coming from, they would say, I'm going up to Jerusalem. Um, and you'll notice that in the Bible. Um, you'll see someone say often, we're going up to Jerusalem. Even if they were north, south, east, or west, they would talk about going up because they were literally ascending a mountain. Um, and, and these songs were saying traditionally, as people would ascend Mount Zion um, to pay a visit to Jerusalem for a very specific purpose. Um, Jerusalem was the capital of Israel, obviously. It was the religious headquarters. Solomon's temple was there. Um, it was this unified house of worship uh, for the nation that um, really kind of captured the national identity of the nation. Um, they could worship in their hometowns. There were shrines and altars all over the place. Um, but Israel shared this national identity, this patriotism and nationalism. It was so a part of their individual lives. Uh, the nation would come together and make pilgrimage to one single location to worship God. And that's why they would come to Jerusalem so many times a year. And, and remember, the nation was born out of slavery. They were all set free at once. They all marched across the desert together, across the Red Sea as one. And even though they came to the Promised Land and all dispersed by their tribes and by their families, um, more than any other people in the world, they still felt this need and this necessity to come together as one and worship God as one. They didn't make pilgrimages to Jerusalem once a week, of course, um, but they did several times a year. Uh, there was these national holidays built into everybody's schedule, and everyone was given time off a few times a year to, to uh, allow and facilitate the whole nation to come together in Jerusalem. And, and literally hundreds of thousands of people would cram into Jerusalem and its surrounding towns for these tentpole festivals basically once every season. Um, and originally there were three big ones, and then there, there was, a fourth one was added around what we celebrate when we celebrate Christmas, but there was these big events that would call everyone to come together, one around March, another around June, and then another around September. Um, and as they would travel in these big bands from these separate tribes, from their separate areas and separate homes, they would come almost always eventually, they would end up as one large procession literally marching to Zion, you've heard that song, ascending Mount Zion from any given direction, in the days leading up to the festival week, and it literally, and, and, and obviously, you know, I don't have pictures back from back then, but I got one that's similar to what I think it would look like. Literally, as they would come to this mountain, as they would come to Jerusalem, there were hundreds of thousands of people just elbow to elbow, you know, front to back, crammed on the city pathways or on the pathways as they were marching up to Zion. And again, this might be what it looked like, would have looked like. Um, now, you can imagine... That's the L.A. freeway. Um, sometimes it looks like what goes on up here. But you can imagine um, it was a lot of time spent waiting to merge, right? Waiting to, get, um, to, waiting to get everybody crammed in, literally, into the city. And, 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 and imagine not just being cars, but literally people, hundreds of thousands of people, um, elbow to elbow, shoulder to shoulder. And depending on which era you would have made this pilgrimage, you would have usually had to enter the city and ascend into the city through one gate. So you can imagine hundreds of thousands of people all trying to funnel in the city through one opening. And tradition says that it was the southern gate. Um, you can imagine that's not that wide, right? All those people trying to find their way and fit their way in through the southern gate. And you may wonder, why did they have to go through a specific gate? Well, if you spent literally days maybe weeks, traveling through the Judean desert and the Judean hills um, in the hot sun, um, and you know, they didn't have, you know, they didn't wear shoes like we wear shoes, they didn't have, you know, all the amenities that we have, no rest stops, no gas stations, right, none, none of that, 
you could imagine when you arrived at the city, you would kind of smell pretty bad, right? And y'all wouldn't, but I probably would. And that's why they made everybody go in the southern gate, because the southern gate, um, you would be greeted with this gigantic pool, the Pool of Siloam that you've heard about and read about in the book of John. They would all be forced to go through the southern gate and make a pit stop at the pool to make sure they wash off, because they didn't want anybody getting into the city and smelling the place up. So they would make everybody stop by the, the Siloam pool, wash up, clean up, and then you could make your way up the mountain up into the city and make your initial visit to the temple. And, and along the way, as the standstill and stops would take place, these songs would be sang, especially as they neared the city. And parades and bands would form to perform these songs that, as they got inside the city walls and began making their way through the southern wall of the Temple Mount, through the Holda Gate, up the stairs that you can go and, and, and visit yourself and you can see pictures of and, and you can actually follow this uh, pilgrimage pathways through different websites. They've actually got like different pictures that show the, the progression that they would have made way back and, and you can still retrace today. And now all of these are so memorable and special. We looked at Psalm 121 last week and again Psalm 120 before it all capture the spirit behind these pilgrimages. Um, if you read both of them, if you read both of them, it's all about looking to God for help. Why were they coming to Jerusalem? Because they believed that God could help them like he had helped their ancestors. Wondering and believing that as he performed mighty miracles in years before, he could do it again. And, and, and we learned last week that more than just coming to set their hope in God, they came to find help from God. Now, the next few Psalms also share a theme, um, and, and obviously the message of hope and help continues. Um, but the song is going to shift. The song is going to shift from one of hope to one of confidence, to one of, I hope I get some help, to one that I am confident I am going to get some help. And as they would get through the city gates, they would begin to sing Psalm 122, Psalm 123, 4, and 5. These specifically capture this confident spirit that would, that would come over the Jews as they would march up the temple mount because they knew they were getting close. Now the next few songs um, are about the joy and the peace and the good found in God obtained from gathering together with God's people for worship. And again, we're only looking at 122, but I encourage you, it won't take long, read the next few in your time this week. All of them are templates to praise God through. And here's the thing I've learned from reading and studying these recently. The writers who wrote these, the pilgrims who sang these, they made these songs popular because they believed that the words were true and that the message was true. And that might sound like it shouldn't need to be said, but I think it needs to because I think sometimes we think the Bible is just this religious book that was printed off from heaven, right? And, and, and the people that wrote it had no say-so and, and whether they believed it was true or not we're expected to believe it. But that's not how the Bible came together. Um, it wasn't written by one person. It was written by many, many people. And as for the Psalms, they were songs chosen and compiled together in this hymnal that were individually written and sang by, that were popular and chosen specifically to lead people in worship. So I say this to emphasize that Psalms 122, when it opens up and says, I was glad when they said to me, it's time to go to God's house, right? The reason why the song opens that way is because somebody was really glad to go to God's house. They didn't write it so that we would be convinced it's a good thing to go. They wrote it because they were convinced it was a good place to go. 
You hear that? This wasn't somebody trying to teach their grandchild, right? Or someone that wouldn't go, hey, you should sing this song, it'll make you feel better. No, this was a song that was saying because people knew the joy and the peace and the good that came from coming together in God's house with God's people. Again, this wasn't some produced song to convince people. It was a joyful song of inspired people. When Psalm 124 says, if not for the Lord being on our side, we wouldn't have made it alive, they really meant that. When Psalm 125 says, those who trust in the Lord cannot be moved or shaken, they really believe that. They're not just trying to convince people, they were convinced. See, we often open the Bible and we read this or we read that and we remove the human element. But let it not be lost on us that hundreds of thousands of people sing Psalm 122 year after year, season after season, and they believe with all of their heart and all of their soul that God would exclusively provide joy and peace and good for them when they went to His house. They expected it. They depended on it. And they got it. See, for us today, they literally believe the best thing they could do, and this may sound so preachery, I know, and, and that's fine, that they believe the best thing they could do, whether with family or friends or alone, was to come together with a large group of God's people and worship Him and hear from Him. They believe that was the milestone of their life. They believe that attending His house and being a part of His community was, as it says in verse number 2, our feet have been standing within your gates. You know what that means? We've been waiting for this, and we've been waiting in a long line to get here, God. And we want to say emphatically, it's worth waiting in line for. Have you ever waited in line for something? Now, y'all know me. I've got some foolish, foolish stories of waiting in line. I won't tell on myself today, maybe in a little bit. But have you waited in line for something, right? And you only waited in line because you had to, Right? Right, maybe you had maybe it was an emergency, right? And it was a dreaded wait for to, to to get you know help, whether it was at the hospital or something. And you might not have been in a physical line, but you were waiting in line. But I'm talking, have you ever waited in in line, right? You know, you're sweating and it's hot, right? And and it's at Disney World, right? And you think I paid so much money to get here, I can't get out of line. But you're then you have people like me, and you look at them, and they're happy to be in line. I mean, they've been waiting for three hours and they're smiling, right? And you're thinking. What is wrong? I mean, you know, of course, I, you know, I've been down there without kids, right? So I don't have somebody screaming at me, whatever. But hey, I could imagine myself, hey, it's just a pleasure to be in this line because it's going to be three minutes of the best time of my life and I'm going to get out of that line, out of that ride and get another line. Listen, I, I've done some dumb things. I've waited in line and, and don't think too hard because it might have been when I was here. About seven years ago, um, seven, eight years ago, I, 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 I didn't stand. I sat on the floor and I hid behind the counter because they didn't want nobody to see me. But I was at Walmart for the launch of something big, um, some technology that I had to have, right? It's about to be outdated in about nine months, but hey, I'm ready for it. I don't know if I'll do it again this, this time because I'm married and have responsible things to do. But seven, eight years ago, I waited in line for about eight hours to buy something. And I got tired, and Mom brought me some food, right? But I still waited, and it was, it was worth it completely. Maybe not. But you could buy them. I could have went back the next day and bought one. But you know what? Sometimes, you know, you see people on, on TV, you see those people on TV line up for the iPhone, right? I don't do that. You think, are those people crazy? But, hey, you know me, so you can make that judgment later. But we've all waited in line for stuff, and it's okay, right? I don't judge you for waiting in line, and please don't judge me for waiting in line. But I don't judge anybody for waiting in line for something that's worth it. 
But I dare say we've never had to wait in line to get in here. And I dare say the biggest churches in the country don't require waiting in too long of a line. But the Jews that went to, to Jerusalem to worship in God's house, they waited in line just to get a glimpse. Now, they didn't have pews. It wasn't a place you went and sat. It was a place you went and visited for a few minutes, and then you left. And then you went and got in a hotel and looked out your window, and you could just smell the savor of sacrifices, but you couldn't go there because nobody was allowed in but a few people. But they still waited in line for it. I mean, can you imagine how crazy they must have been? But was it actually worth it? What on earth was worth that sort of anticipation? What could possibly happen or take place during a worship service that would fully warrant that sort of dedication and elicit that kind of enthusiasm? It was a big question asked by a lot of outsiders back in the ancient world, many that were in Jerusalem even, uh, that were influenced by other faiths. They wondered, what could Israel's God do, who had no idol or image, by the way, that another more visible God couldn't do? I mean, what can this God that, doesn't, that isn't even visible, what can he do for me that really is worth waiting in line? And those are legitimate questions, right? I mean, just like many in our world today hear the invitation to come and worship, to follow Jesus, and they mock and they scoff at the idea, and they wonder out loud even, what can God offer me that I can't find in a better alternative? And somebody's going to ask you that at some point in your life, and sometimes we don't really have an answer because we don't really know what the answer is because we've become so routine and so unenthusiastic. So, well, I guess it's Sunday in our... Attendance of the ancients added even more of a reason to be skeptical of the Jewish faith because in the ancient world, as it is in today's world, what brought people together was theatrics and spectacle. Religion wasn't an exception. It was really the rule, the poster child for this sort of thing. Religion was all about putting on a show and drawing people in. A typical religious service would feature a giant idol or statue of a god, thousands of sacrifices in front of him. Orators commanding the crowd, the stage show, smoke and fire. And people obviously showed up for a good time. Nothing wrong with that. But the draw was getting to see if the God would show up in a big way. But things were different for Israel. There were no idols. There were no images. In fact, this was prohibited by their law. And you may wonder why. It went against the very nature of who God is. And it went against the nature of the relationship that he wants to have with us. Now more on that in a minute. But you can imagine many people wondered even within Israel because of the influence of other religions and cultures. Why would we be glad to go to God's house? He's not even there. I mean there's no idol. There's no image. There's no way for me to even know that he's actually present. No representation, there's nothing to see, then what is the use? And those are valid questions in the ancient world. But the Jews would respond, the Bible responds, and maybe you have a similar question, a similar skepticism about church, and maybe you've got someone in your family or in your friends or in your life that would say the same thing to you. Why would I be glad to go to that place because he's not even there, and how do I know I'm going to get anything out of it? Jesus, one time, was asked about this on a mountain with a Samaritan woman, and he said this, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, listen, and don't dismiss that so quickly as what you would expect Jesus to say. In spirit means unseen. It's not about what we do or how we do it. It's about what is underneath and behind what we do and how we do it. It's about our hearts, and this is good news. It's about faith. You hear that? That's why God didn't want an idol representing him to some in some shrine because people would naturally confine him to that shrine and to that location. 
And when Solomon dedicated the temple, here's what he had to say. Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven in the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Solomon knew that God is not someone we can fit in a box or contain to a building or a time. He is bigger than we could ever imagine. His spirit cannot be confined or contained to a style, tradition, or format. And this speaks to the heart of worshiping God. God's presence is not something that is worked up. God's Spirit is wherever people worship Him by faith. It's very important. The greatest lie that so many Christians and churches believe is that God only shows up if the show is good. Come on. Do you really think Do you really think that any measly effort of man could ever earn the presence of our universe-sized God? I mean, science tells us the universe is always expanding. I wonder why it's always expanding. Because our God is bigger, right, than this universe can contain. So it keeps growing and growing and growing and growing. And do you really think, I don't care how professional, how good, how talented... Do you really think any measly effort this side of earth could ever earn the presence of a God who's bigger than the universe? I think he ever says, wow, they got my attention, got to go. Absolutely not. And listen, nothing wrong with having a good show, but God shows up where people sincerely seek him. That's the good news, right? And that's what the temple, that's why the temple was so inviting. And hear hear this, because somebody needs to hear this today. It was a place of equal opportunity. Because anybody could experience God by faith. Not by talent. Not by skill. Not by wisdom. Not by power. By faith. It was never about the smoke or the fire or the song or the sermon. It was always about a soul sincerely seeking God. I'm not downplaying the the, the presence of our God. I'm just wanting to emphasize how we get God's attention and how you can experience God by faith. This precedent was set before there was ever a temple, and I want you to hear this story before we quit. Israel's number one patriarch, from whom they got their name, set this precedent. Of course, before he was called Israel, he was called Jacob. And before he was the prince of God, he was the choice trickster of man. Now, Jacob was promised to God at birth to inherit a blessing from God that would take his family's tribe and make it a nation and would tell the whole world about his God. Jacob got worried, got ahead of God, and decided to take things into his own hands, and he tricked his brother. He outsmarted his dad and ended up being on the wanted list because Esau, his brother, had a lot, of, a lot of power, a lot of clout in his community, and Esau vowed to kill Jacob, and everyone was on Esau's size because Esau was bigger and had a, lot of, had a lot of influence. So Jacob spent years of his life running from not only his family but from God, and the blessing he tried to steal, he was running from. He grew weary one day, and he finally had to stop for a rest, and little did he know the rest he was about to find. Here's how the story goes. Jacob left Beersheba and went to Haran, and he came to a certain place. The Hebrew for a certain place just means a random spot on the side of the road. Nothing spiritual about that at all. A certain place. He stayed there that night because the sun had set. He took a stone of the place, and he put it under his head. He was that desperate for a place to rest. He took a rock and made a pillow out of it. 
He laid down to sleep, and here's what he dreamt. Behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. Here's what the interpretation of that is. Hey, Jacob, I see you trying to earn me and work for me. I'm going to go ahead and set a ladder up for you, and it already reaches heaven. You don't have to try to climb up here. I'm going to make it easy for you. You hear that? The angels were ascending and descending, showing Jacob, look, it's easy. Anybody can do it. And then at the top of the ladder stood the Lord, and he says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac, the land of which you lie. I will give to you, Jacob, you're trying to earn it and fight for it and work for it. I've already given it to you. And it's going to be to your offspring. He says, I promise you, I am with you. I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So their entire worldview, their entire faith was built on this idea that God made a promise and God was going to keep it and they could depend on God for it. We've lost this as a church, I think. We've lost this fact that God has promised us something. God has provided us something that is there for us always and forever. And listen to how Jacob responds to this dream. Surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. And we say, Jacob, how did you know? How can you be sure that God's in this place? He says, hey, listen, y'all, I just want you to know, wherever you are, whatever place you gather in, that is where God is, because he set a ladder up from earth to heaven. He's made it easy. Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it, because it didn't look spiritual, it didn't sound spiritual, it didn't feel spiritual, but God has made a promise to me. Some of us, some of you need to put that verse on the, on the wall in your house, right? And it might not, it might, you know, be easy on when you get home from church on Sunday, but when things aren't going good, you might need to look at that and remember that surely God is in this place, not because I've deserved it. How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. It was a piece, it was a rock on the side of the road. Jacob says, nah. This is God's house. See, all this pointed to how God would provide for everyone's salvation that we all need. Years later, when Jacob's descendants were taken into slavery in Egypt, they, they held on to this hope that God would provide. He raised up a man named Moses who promised deliverance. The sign of deliverance would be the Passover lamb, a lamb who would suffer the pain and sorrow and death that seemed to be looming over everyone this lamb was slain one night and his blood was applied to every doorpost of every Jewish home. And as death swept over the lamb, over the land of Egypt, death passed over Israel. And the sacrifices the nation made in the temple all called back to the Passover lamb and all pointed to another lamb, a lamb that wouldn't just save them from Egypt and Pharaoh, but would save them from the enemy and from sin and from death. And every sacrifice made in the temple would remind people that God was doing something for us. We just needed to trust in Him. People were glad to go to the Lord's house because it wasn't about what they were going to do. It was about what God had done because he was bigger and beyond their wildest imagination. Now let me ask you, let me th bring this up before we quit. How many Lord's houses were there in Israel? Just one. People didn't choose which one to go to. People didn't get bored or tired or mad and move to another one. There was just one. 
But this extends even to the New Testament days. When churches were planted in the, in the, by the New Testament Jerusalem team, there was one per town. And if any went into a town where there were multiple house meetings, Paul would say, y'all are going to all come into this one place and meet here. You know why Paul worked so hard against his own fandom and why he talked about how he didn't want people to put him on a pedestal and compare him to Peter or John and everyone to compete between churches and think, well, I'm going to go here and I'm going to go there and we can just do whatever we want because we're not confined to the same place. You know why Paul worked so hard against that? Because he and they and any other preacher are just messengers. And of course one's better than the other, and of course one sings better than the other, but it's never about the messengers, it's never about the singers, it's about the song. It's about the message. The angels were glad to go to the Lord's house because they knew the preach not because they knew the preaching would be good or the singing would be good. They were glad to go because they knew God was always good. Listen, I'm not always good. The best always won't be best or even good. Don't hitch your wagon to somebody that appears to have it when you can hitch your wagon to God who's already shown he's got it and that he's got you. See, in many ways, the church has lost touch with this sort of culture. And I know things are just in a way that they'll never be undone. But I think we can learn a lot from this ancient, this ancient template of Israel, don't you? Instead of confidently proclaiming what God has done to help everyone, we act as if it's up to us to perform and convince everyone. We could learn so much from the culture around ancient Israel's worship. L listen, it was never about the quality of the content. And listen, they had great content. It was great. It was always good services. But they were always comforted by the assurance from the community, connecting with God and connecting with God's people. That's what made them know it was never about being entertained. It's not that they weren't glad to go. That's not why they were glad to go. It was never about that. They would have gotten disenchanted eventually and wanted to go down the road and do a different thing. The temple constantly provided an engaging platform to display who God was and what He had done. Don't get me wrong. I'm not downplaying the importance of excellence. I'm just clarifying that there's a distinction between breaking records and producing results, making points, and making differences in people's lives. If you read these psalms, there are words of people who were impacted and changed by what they experienced in worship, by the God they encountered. Everything that, they, that went on communicated God's heart in a current, clear, and compelling way. But the content was never allowed to get in the way of what people were really after. And that was community. And that's what we all need more than anything. Content is a product of community, not a replacement for it. Long after you forget an amazing sermon or you forget an amazing song, you won't soon forget that connection you made with God and His people. Churches have brought, bought into this lie that it's all about content, but our heart tells us that we want more. We want a community of God where everyone loves and invests in each other and invites others. A community about showing, knowing, and growing. A place of acceptance and belonging and inspiration, a community that is a destination, a can't-miss experience. And you know what retains and sustains a church? Not how good the content is, how loving the community is. The experience that leaves a lasting difference isn't what people see, it's how they are made to feel. Not just by what goes on up here, by someone they've never met, but by what goes on between here and there and beyond. 
A church lives and dies by community that values relationships most of all that we have with God and that we have with others. You know why this is a big deal to me, why I talk about it a lot? Because my passion for our church is that, my hope for our church is that this is in our DNA. This is our heartbeat. Because here's the thing, we're a young church. We're just a few years old in light of how long the church has been going on for 2,000 years. A lot of bodies of Christ have come and gone and God has given us the privilege to be on the spectrum of the kingdom of God. This psalm talks about praying for the peace of the community, seeking the good for the sake of the community, for the sake of the house of God. This tells me something that's very important. The heart of the faith community is value, not evaluation. Often as Christians, our relationship with the church can be, become more about evaluating how things are going rather than seeing the value in going. Rather than whether it's your first time or, or you've been here a long time, there's always the temptation to evaluate from the benefit you're getting from attending to how someone else might be doing. But don't ever forget the value found in seeking your God by faith alongside your brother and sister. A lot of us, we don't receive the joy and the peace and the good that's available from church because we allow the enemy to distract us. In our world today, the church suffers because we focus so much on our choices and we lose sight of God's choice. I'm not saying that your feelings and your opinion and interest don't matter, but so many of us never find true joy, peace, and good from church because we never stop evaluating. We never stop and realize that God has chosen us. The church wasn't created to be a stumbling block, but a platform that this can become clearer and take us deeper, not drive us away. At some point, every believer, every person has to stop and breathe and say, you know what, I'm glad I get the privilege to know that God loves me, and I'm glad this is the certain place he has put me. Thank God for this platform. Thank God for this family. Thank God for this place I can worship him and know others as well as him. I can't wait to go to my church and see what he's done now. Then and only then we might begin to understand the value of worship. These psalms are all about ascending. See, for many of you, you've never ascended to a place where God's house and his household is really the anchor of your life, the filter through which you do everything and find purpose. And we've never been able to communicate why church is so important to us because we were just told it should be. We never figured out why it actually was. I'm telling you, you're missing out on so much joy, peace, and good, so much purpose, knowing that you're part of an outpost for the kingdom of heaven, knowing that you're valued, that you're loved. If only we came and left this house with that in mind. When we have this attitude, when we take it with us, everything can change. See, if anything coming to church reminds us, regardless of how close we may be with anyone else or not, it reminds us that we should cherish being a part of God's family and reach out to those who are not yet a part of God's family. See, it's important that we know the true reasons why we can be glad to know the house, to go to the house of the Lord. Be reminded that God is good, to sing about his goodness, to see and feel his goodness through community, and be reminded there are plenty who don't yet know this or have forgotten it. And that's why before Jesus even got the ball rolling in his movement, he told the crowd on opening day his goals for them were this. You are the light of the world. You're a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. People do not light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good 
and give glory to God in heaven. When we prioritize building and being a church where the presence and power of God is irresistible, where there are no barriers, no hurdles, no walls, this is something the disciples learn so quickly about how to reach people if you just get them in the presence of Jesus. And you know where the presence of Jesus is? Where we love people like God has loved us. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God abides in us and is perfected through and in us. You know why they loved going to the house of the Lord? Not because they could see God there, but they knew they could feel his presence through the love they found in the community, through the power presented through the sacrifice that God so loved them, he was making a sacrifice for them, and they were just getting a preview of it. When we make the church a community of love where we sing to God for joy, we pray to God for peace, we trust in God for good, we love one another for the sake of God's house. But not only that, we shine our lights into our world by being glad to go to their house as much as we are to go to God's. And see, that's the beauty of community. In the ancient world, it was confound to one place. But the beauty of the church the beauty of our community, it's not location-based. It's love-based. It goes wherever we go. God loves you, and through community, we get to learn and lean into his love. And he's given us the opportunity to love and show it and share it. If we only just rested in this one truth, if we only trusted in God's love, we would find rest, we would find joy and peace just like they found. I don't know about you, I was glad when the alarm said to me, it's time to go to God's house today. But I don't just get to be glad on Sundays. I get to be glad every day. Because the certain places I find myself every day, God sets his ladder up and says, I'm here with you, buddy. I'm never going to leave you. And the love I've given you, you can share with somebody else today. You can take that spirit of community wherever you go, wherever you are. You represent not just risen church, but the resurrected church of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for encouraging us. Thank you for giving us the joy for being in this house today. Lord, there are a lot of things that try to compete with our attention and try to tell us that this is more important or that's more important. Lord, and I don't just say this as a, as a pastor, I say this as a Christian, the enemy works so hard to steal my joy from coming to this place. He works so hard. He's worked on somebody this entire message today. He's tried to convince somebody that this isn't what they needed to hear and this isn't what they needed to find the joy and the peace and the good that they've been missing and waiting for. Lord, we rebuke him in the name of Jesus and we rebuke him from ever being in this place. And in this invitation right now, as we sing and we ask you to give us faith, and to give us help and strength. Lord, we want to turn our eyes towards you, and we want to declare that you are worth waiting in line for, you're worth getting up for, you're worth singing for, you're worth praying to, you're worth trusting in. Lord, we love you, and we thank you so much for your church. Thank you for making us just a small part of your kingdom. And Lord, I want to encourage everybody here this morning that you would show them the joy and the peace and the good that come from being here and taking that same spirit and that same goodness with them. And that they could shine that light into somebody's heart that needs it this week, just like they needed it today. Lord, we love you and we sing this next song as a prayer. Would you give us faith? 
In Jesus' name, amen.